feel a little like a fish out of water today because I like to wear the boom over my ear where I don't have to hold something because I'm extremely animated. I don't know if any of you know that, but I'm very animated and I don't like my hands tied up with anything. So if at some point in time during the message today, I do something like this and this goes flying, just plug your ears. It's going to come down somewhere. God invented gravity too. Our world is a world in desperate need of answers. Those answers are not found in capital buildings, in congressional buildings. They're not found in men and women gathered in places of high visibility. They're not obtained, these answers, by individuals coming together and thinking that they can derive some kind of a plan. Most of the time, those plans being jaded, skewed, and poisoned by individual motivation. But presented in such a way where we're made to feel like we're somehow benefiting. Not an amen in the house. Nowhere on planet earth can you find a gathering of human beings exalted through election or uh, placement through coup d'etat, I'll get it out here in a minute, where they are going to come up with legitimate, genuine answers for the ills of people. That doesn't exist. Even in the halls of medicine, where we go to see doctors of every type, shape, idea, every, every specialized type, every one of them still say boldly that they are only practicing medicine. And guess who the guinea pigs are? <laughs> That sounds much darker than I intended it. I apologize. The reality is that often is the case that we find ourselves in positions where we have no answers and without direction. And the only thing keeping people like you and me grounded and rooted in sanity at all not insanity, but in sanity. Okay, you five people that giggled a little bit, barely where I could hear you, I appreciate your ministries. Is that we know too much about our Lord and Savior to just give up. We're not willing to give up despite what appears to be occurring around us because we know too much about who He is. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Word of God says, which is where we place our trust, in the unmoving, immutable Word of God, where it says that greater is He. That is in us than he who is in the world. And it doesn't take a scholar or, or someone of intense, amazing intellect to figure out very quickly that this world is governed by the prince of the power of the air. His governorship, however, does not dilute the influence of the divine Almighty. Because he said, now keep in mind what I'm about to tell you. I want you to think about this. He told us that everywhere our foot will tread. I have given that to you. So the governor, the prince of the power of the air, may be and may have an established foothold 
just step on his toes a little bit. Jay, has my slide gone up? Put that up right now. Open with me to Second Samuel. Chapter four. We're gonna be we're gonna read out of the fourth verse of Second Samuel chapter four. This is part one. of a series that I'm going to be preaching on in the coming weeks on depression. Second Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. This morning, I'm going to be preaching part one of this series on depression about a man named Mephibosheth. Now, in the event that you don't know who this guy is, was, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan and a grandson of King Saul. He is mentioned in both books of Samuel as well as the Chronicles. But in the Chronicles, he's not called Mephibosheth. In the Chronicles, he's referred to as Meribal. Now, I don't know if I actually pronounced that second name correctly because the latter half of his name is actually spelled Baal. So you're just going to have to excuse me if if I mispronounced his name as found in the Chronicles. Our text states here that Mephibosheth fell at the age of five years old and that as a result, he was permanently crippled in both feet. Now, how and why exactly did Mephibosheth end up in this condition? Well, why don't we take a quick look and we'll get some backstory on this individual. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, we learn that, and this is the close of 1 Samuel when we get this deep into it, we learn that the Philistines, you know, the ever popular Philistines, fought against Israel. And while in the process of retreating, Israel suffered some devastating losses around the the place called Mount Gilboa, where in quote, hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, end quote, three of Saul's sons were killed. Jonathan was one of those three sons that had been killed. As the battles raged, these Philistines had caught up with Saul, and they advanced their archers 
and they subsequently severely wounded Saul. And as a result, instead of being captured, tortured, and subsequently killed and executed by the Philistines, Saul ultimately took his own life, falling on his own sword there in the battlefield. And in so doing, what he did was vacate the throne of Israel. And in so doing, he left his house, all of his family that were back home, everybody that worked for him, etc., in great jeopardy and in desperate danger. When word of Saul's and Jonathan's deaths arrived in, in Jerusalem at, the, at the, uh, the, palace, the, the palace, I'm sorry, from Jezreel, that's where word came, Saul's terrified household made a hasty exodus in an effort to avoid being unceremoniously slaughtered by the incoming administration. But in her haste in trying to make this exodus, the nurse of Jonathan's then five-year-old son accidentally dropped him, crippling him for the duration of his life. Eventually, this nurse and Mephibosheth settled in a town called Lodibar. And Mephibosheth lived there for the rest of his life. From that point forward until his life was unceremoniously interrupted. But he lived there a life of dejection, discouragement, despondency, and depression. Years later, while still living in Lodibar, Mephibosheth, this is the unceremonious interruption to his life, Mephibosheth was summoned by King David in 2 Samuel chapter 9. After David had inquired concerning any possible descendants of King Saul that he could show kindness to. Now, why David did this, uh, instead of on a wholesale level seeking to eradicate any potential competition, was that he and Jonathan, Saul's son, being David's dearest, closest, and best friend, had made a covenant together that no matter what happened to Jonathan, David would forever and always show kindness to his family. With that said, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see this Davidic inquiry. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness to? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked Ziba. Or the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Amael, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel. Well, as a result of this summons appearing before David in 2 Samuel 9, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dead dog. 
What kind of imagery does a dead dog conjure up for you? When you hear me use those words, I know for a fact that your brain is now rifling through a virtual Rolodex of images of dead dogs. Maybe one you've seen just recently. Or maybe a pet that you had. Or multiple pets. Or whatever the case. A dead dog. Why would Mephibosheth have referred to himself as a dead dog? Well, let's look at that for just a moment. Not of his own making and by no fault of his own. Mephibosheth found himself in a life and in circumstances that were so bad that he not only referred to himself as a dead dog, but he told David the king that he was wasting his time and shouldn't even be doing anything so much as noticing him. The image that Mephibosheth had of himself was that of utter, complete, and perfect worthlessness. He was crippled. He felt insignificant. And he was broken both on the inside as well as on the outside. And to make matters worse, because the political climate had changed so dramatically all those years ago, what with his father and his grandfather having been killed by the Philistines, and now that David was sitting on the throne of Israel, he likely felt that he was still an enemy of the state, and under normal circumstances, he would have been. You see, centuries ago, it was customary that when a ruler was defeated, that his family and his descendants were also all killed as well as to eliminate any chance of a descendant that a descendant might emerge and attempt a coup in an effort to reclaim the throne. So despite Mephibosheth's severely compromised physical condition, he likely thought himself still to be in great danger. As a result of this potential and certain threat, back when he was five, Mephibosheth's nurse took the then young prince and fled to Lodabar. Lodabar meaning the land of nothing. The land of nothing. For the express purpose of hiding the now permanently injured little prince. And Mephibosheth, who was once the grandson of the king of Israel and his father, himself a prince, was now nothing more than a dead dog living in the land of nothing. A dead dog living in the land of nothing. You see, being dropped has consequences. Being dropped has ramifications. To most, a dead dog is nothing more than an unfortunate and inconvenient fact of life. It's unfortunate not for the dog, but for us, because it creates the inconvenience of having to either bury the dog if it's a pet, and if it's not, simply having to watch it lay as it slowly decomposes on the side of the road or out in the pasture, gathering flies, bloating in the sun, eventually bursting, and then being reduced to nothing but buzzard food 
until it completely disappears from both view as well as memory. He was a good dog, but he's dead now. Life moves on, and no one is losing any sleep. Not a nice thought to think about, really. But it was the attitude, not to mention the self-image that Mephibosheth had of himself. Hopeless, valueless, futureless, and forgotten. Being dropped has consequences. Being dropped has ramifications. Being dropped, brothers and sisters, can utterly devastate a person, reducing their sense of value to crippling lows. Being dropped can destroy a person's image of themselves. Being dropped can take a person from a life of hope containing infinite possibilities and violently reroute them into an abyss of hopelessness where all possibilities have been stripped away left to face the future without hope. And as we all know, a future without hope is no future at all. A dead dog in the land of nothing. You see, being dropped, brothers and sisters, suggests that someone was carrying you that you were in the care of someone else, someone close, that someone was responsible for your life, that they were responsible for your safety, that they were responsible for your welfare, someone so close to you that they were trusted with the responsibility of lifting you up and transporting you from one place to another. Being dropped suggests that someone who should have been pouring into you, someone who should have been nurturing you, seeing to it that you had hope and a future, didn't. And instead, they dropped you. They didn't carry you. They didn't lift you up. They didn't transport you. They dropped you. So, Here's the $64,000 question for the morning. Who dropped you? Who dropped you? Perhaps the person who dropped you was a parent, a mom or a dad. Perhaps the person who dropped you was a sibling. Maybe they were a relative, possibly a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, maybe a cousin. Maybe the person who dropped you was a friend, someone close. Maybe it was an employer or a co-worker who was responsible to carry you along, to bring you along, to lift you up. But instead, they dropped you. Maybe it was a church member. And God forbid, maybe it was clergy. Who dropped you? Did you know that in 2020, a study was conducted and a report was subsequently published by the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that nearly... One in every five U.S. adults 
has been diagnosed with depression. Nearly one in every five United States adults has suffered or suffers with depression. And the sad thing about that number is that's just the adults. The National Institution for Mental Health reports that in the United States in 2020, that an estimated 2.0 million adolescents ranging from the ages of 12 to 17 had at least one major depressive episode with severe impairment in the past year that interfered with or that limited their ability to carry out major life activities. That number... 2.9 million adolescents between 12 and 17 years of age represents, get a load of this, 12% of the U.S. population of the ages of 12 to 17. I tell you all this because with statistics like these, what with all that the world is shelling out these days and has been for a long time. And what with all that people have to contend with in their lives, both young people as well as older, go, all the things that they go through these days, it is likely, and if you can italicize a word that is hanging in the air, then italicize the word likely that there are people in this very congregation today that are suffering with, have suffered with, or will suffer with depression. That's staggering. And what's interesting is that, unbeknownst to any of us, the things that you may have experienced, walked through, been foisted upon you, are things that no one much may know a thing about. And yet, because of what they are and how long-standing they may or may not be, they could have, possibly do, or will alter the trajectory of your life and living in Christianity if you don't do something about it. That's a fact. How would I possibly know that? How could I possibly be so bold up here, a preacher and a bass player, make such statements as that? Because something you don't know about me was that in 2022, sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I was sitting on the couch in my house, and it was just Melissa and I. The Christmas tree was up right in front of me, slightly to the left. All the lights in the house were off. The Christmas tree was on, looking beautiful. Melissa is off to my right at the dining room table working on her laptop. And It's a Wonderful Life is playing on TV. Talk about depressing. And I said to my wife, Honey, something's very, very wrong. And I've got to do something about it. And in short order, I called my general bishop, dear friend of mine, up in the Metroplex, Wayman Ming Jr. And I asked him, how do you go on a sabbatical? 
and he instructed me how to do it. And I informed him then that I was suffering from clinical depression. And for nearly the next year, unbeknownst to you, I was being treated for clinical depression while on my sabbatical. It had altered the course of my life. And I didn't even know what I was dealing with until I became a patient. I had no idea what I was dealing with. But it's funny how when you are walking around and you on the outward are not yourself, but on the inward you realize that's not me. You're acting like something else. And on the inside you're saying, that's not right. God, help me. And you're crying out because really you're fe- you think you're failing God when in reality God is taking his child and guiding him down the path, a path that you don't know you're being guided on. You think you're a failure. You think something is desperately wrong. Something is wrong, but it's not irreversible. It's not something that can't be fixed. It's not something that God can't handle. And I went to see Dr. Jeff Logue over in Waxahachie and Jeff walked me through a long, arduous, and painful process. Recognizing what in God's name was going on in my life. And the thing that I found out, the thing that I realized, all because of Jeff, was that, Michael, you're not alone. Because what I found was, there are ministers, he's an AG guy, he's an assemblies guy, okay? There are ministers everywhere, all the time, perpetually suffering from clinical depression. You wonder why we ask for you to pray for us. People think that herding sheep is a hard job. Herding sheep is not a hard job when those sheep know the Lord. You go through hard times and God has put us in places to help. Because doesn't the Bible say that He's the one that leads us beside still waters and in green pastures? Herding sheep isn't the hardest job in the world, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you that right now. Does it have its challenges? Oh, yes. Being a pastor has its challenges. But in reality... have to just realize God's in control. Who dropped you? Who dropped you? Who dropped you? Being dropped has consequences. And maybe what you're experiencing is some of those consequences. Being dropped has ramifications, and maybe what you're experiencing is some of those ramifications. Let's get back to Mephibosheth. With all that he endured in life, is it any wonder that that man saw himself as a dead dog living in the land of nothing? Dejected, discouraged, despondent, and depressed. Well, this is a bummer of a message, especially in light of the past two weeks that we've experienced under the umbrella of the presence of God. Well, that's not the end of the story. The dead dog living in no, nowhere, in nothing. Let me tell you something about dead dogs. Now, I don't know about Disney's take on all dogs go to heaven. I don't know about that, but I know this. 
that if you've ever walked this life feeling like you were a dead dog living in the land of nothing, there is hope. Owaraku Boama wrote this, even broken... Even broken crayons can still draw straight lines. It only depends on how you hold them. Or, in our case, in the case of people who know and love the Lord, and despite the environmental contaminants around about us, we're unwilling to give up the fight no matter what it is that we're facing, because we know too much about Him to give up. And in our case, in the cases of the ones who will put their hope and their faith and their trust in Christ, even broken crayons can draw straight lines. It only depends on who is holding them. Writing about the inescapable love of God in Psalm 139, David wrote these words, You lay your hand upon me. And then, nothing more than five little verses later, David continues, and he says, Even there... Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even broken crayons can draw straight lines. It only depends on who is holding them. You may have been dropped. You may have suffered, suffered a crippling injury that has left you scarred in pain. But, like David said, if God's hand is the one holding you, it doesn't matter how damaged, how broken, or how crippled that your life appears to be. Straight lines are the norm. Straight lines can be drawn with your life. There is hope when He is holding you and when He is writing the story of your life. In one of my favorite verses in Scripture, and it's quite possibly one of the most oft-quoted Scriptures, one that has sustained me through much of my life, even when... I looked at it without having the foggiest idea how what it said could possibly apply to me. Is Jeremiah, the 11th verse of the 29th chapter, and we all know it, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. If you're an individual has, who has suffered with a depressive episode or something that has utterly wrecked, ruined, and raised your self-image to the ground, verses like that are nice-sounding verses. They sound great. But how in God's name does that actually apply to me despite the fact that in the darkness, in when, when you're alone and no one's around, you cry out and ask God, I don't have the foggiest idea how this works for me. But like in Second Chronicles chapter 20, when the king cried out to God, when the enemy was coming upon them, and they could not defend themselves, he said, we, we have no might. 
we have no power. But then he said, but our eyes are on you. And when you have been reduced to a shell, and God's Word is something you're holding on to like a cat hanging over a roaring rapids, just clinging, you know too much about who He is to let go. It doesn't matter that you understand it. It doesn't matter that you understand how this is ever going to work out for your favor because up until this point, you don't see that it has. Quite the opposite. But you just keep hanging on. Soaking wet. Unwilling to let go because you just know too much about who He is to let go. Upon being summoned by David... Mephibosheth somehow made his way into the throne room. He was probably escorted. Who knows? The Bible doesn't say. He was entering that throne room. Now listen to me and see if this sounds vaguely familiar. He was entering the throne room as nothing more than a dead dog who lived in the land of nothing. However... 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 6, When Mephibosheth's son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid. Can you imagine Mephibosheth's point of reference? He's just been brought into the throne room of who should be his enemy. And he shows up there. He's the only one. Talk about being scared. Talk about being fearful. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always, listen to this, eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I love the next line, which doesn't seem to mean much of anything, except this. David ignored Mephibosheth's claim. He completely ignored what Mephibosheth said about himself. We need to learn that lesson. The king is not interested in your poor self-image. The king is interested in posting you at his table. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. In other words, Ziba was a self uh, contained workforce. Mephibosheth, a dead dog who lived in the land of nothing, who was crippled for his entire life, now came out of the land of nothing, was no longer a dead dog, but was seated like one of the sons of David at the, at the table of the king to feast with them every day for the rest of his life and had everything that was taken from him restored plus given the ability to farm it all so he could be provided for. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a picture of you and I. And we need to wrap our heads around that. We were lost and undone. We are crippled without the King. But when we realize and recognize the redemptive plan of God and surrender our lives over to that plan, become saved children of God, suddenly we are violently removed 
from the status of dead dogs living in the land of nothing and thrust into the dining room of the king. That's us. That is us. Your servant will do whatever the Lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And then lastly it says, he was lame in both feet. Now I realize the time, and we have a little ways to go, but I won't take much, okay? So please be patient with me. Mephibosheth may have entered the throne room, a dead dog living in the land of nothing, but he left there like one of the king's sons, having moved to the holy city because he always ate at the king's table. And so here we are. A happy ending to an otherwise really tough story. And maybe you are one of those people. Maybe you've been dropped. At some point in your life, you were dropped. And maybe in a minor, tiny, only nuanced way, it affected you. Or maybe your entire life trajectory was altered. With... With examples like Mephibosheth, what we want to do is imagine, well, everything worked out for Mephibosheth. Look at all that happened to him. And so that's, we, that's how we project onto ourselves. Well, Jesus is going to just heal me. Jesus is going to make it as though I was never dropped. After all, like Mephibosheth, aren't I sitting at the king's table... Aren't I one of the king's sons or one of the king's daughters? Won't he make it like it never happened? With all that said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Are you persuaded that Jesus loves you? Well, then, are you similarly persuaded that he loves you Broken, scars, and all. Just as you are. Not having to become something you're not. Not having to pretend like what did happen didn't. But the scars and all. Does He still love you? Listen to what Jesus said about having scars. John chapter 20. So the other disciple told him, him being Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And two verses later, in verse 27, then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You see, here's the reason I read that to you. Because Jesus has a perspective about scars. Jesus has His own. And guess what? He kept His. The divine physician who could do anything at all, I mean anything at all, including eradicate the scars in His hands, feet, side and head, not to mention those on his back, he retained his scars. And why would he do that? Why weren't the Lord's scars taken away? 
at, at maybe at his resurrection or, or so, you know, some such. Why weren't they, quote, healed, end quote, simple? His scars are his proof. You see, there's all kinds of talk out there. All kinds of really smart people talking about how Jesus wasn't really crucified. He says, why don't you touch him? Here, reach inside. Here. You see, the scars are his proof. They're the proof of his crucifixion. They were proof that he had died. They were proof that he was buried. And they were proof that he had risen from the dead. His scars were proof. They were evidence that it was, in fact, finished. Our scars, going back to the question, won't he heal me? Make it as though it never happened. Our scars are proof too. They are the evidence that yes, yes, we've experienced trauma. We were dropped. But they are proof that we don't have to stay in Lodibar. We're not dead dogs living in the land of nothing. We have scars, and yet we're seated at the king's table. Quickly now, in the new movie, The Flash. Anybody seen The Flash? Yeah, all one of you. Okay. There's a scene. It just takes a moment where Bruce Wayne is speaking with Barry Allen. They're in a they're in a, 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 a kind of a dismal, dingy road in the city and a street in the city, and they're sitting there talking, and they're. Bruce makes an observation uh, at Barry, to Barry. It, we might want to consider what he said here. He says this, Barry, these scars we have make us who we are. We're not meant to go back and fix them. And there's nothing broken with you that needs to be fixed. Take it from an old guy who's made a lot of mistakes. Listen to me now. Don't live your past. Live your life. Don't let your tragedy define you. End quote. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. This is a quiet Pentecostal church. Here's, and this is the last thing I'm going to say from this message. We've been invited, brothers and sisters, to sit at the king's table. And we've accepted that invitation. But I want you to hear the last little scripture that I have to share here. To finish and finally answer that question. Won't he just make it? Like I was never dropped. See, the thing about Mephibosheth was he sat at the king's table for the rest of his life. Lame. Second Samuel 9.13 And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And the last thing about him that said is, he was lame in both feet. You know what? That right there flies in the face of everything Pentecostal we preach typically. God's going to heal you. God's going to fix you. God's going to make you like it never was. And it's going to be so great. Here's my question. If God's going to fix everything in our lives in the here and now, then why do we have martyrs at all? Why do we have people dying for the cause of Christ anywhere at all, period? Why do we have people in the church? I have friends. I have, I've known throughout the years, and, and, and all of you, if you're remotely ministry types, probably can call 
faces and names right now. People who are serving the Lord in pastoral or evangelical or whatever capacities who came to untimely deaths in ways that were not particularly glorifying to God. Why? If God's going to fix everything, then why doesn't He just do away with it? Why, why is it that we walk into hospitals and pray for six people that don't get well? Why are some of you praying for sick relatives right now that aren't going to be healed? I'll tell you why. And it's really simple. We tend to overthink this. But it's really simple. Because none of these things down here matter to the expansiveness of God's love. Not a bit. He loves you broken and scarred. He loves them dying of cancer. You know that loved one who used to be a prayer warrior and all that, who's now in a nursing home, who does not recognize you because they have dementia and they're no longer that person? Where's God in that? Well, I'll tell you where God is. He's sitting right there with them, still occupying their heart and their spirit, and He's just waiting till their body finally discharges and breaks down, and He's taking them out of here. That's exactly where God is. Christianity does not alter living and life. It does not. What it alters is eternity. Boy, that one deserved a clap. I'm just saying. That was a good one. God is far bigger. You see, we always love to preach God's bigger than cancer. God's bigger than heart disease. God's bigger than this, that, or the other thing. Guess what? He is. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Every last one of them, including all them. But the problem is, is he's so much bigger than that, it doesn't get in his way. It doesn't matter. If he has a job to do in a person's life, cancer doesn't make any difference to him. He'll heal this one, won't that one. Why? Because he's God, he can. And you and I, we're three-dimensional technicolor dirt. And we don't understand all of that. But he's God. He is the infinite sovereign. And he does navigate time and eternity without a GPS. Why? Because he made time and eternity. Doesn't Job tell us? Doesn't Job tell us? That when there was nothing, he was clothed in black. Because there wasn't anything there. He was it. So anything that came subsequently came from him. In him we live and move and have our being. Were you dropped? I'm telling you right now, if you've been dropped... There is hope for you. You may be a child of God. You may be a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ, but you don't understand that part of you that doesn't act very Christ-like. That part of you that's either angry, filled with fear, anxiety, confusion, uncertainty, all of that. If you've been dropped... Being dropped has repercussions. And if that's you, listen to me, there is hope for you. Because the God of your salvation is bigger than your depression. Someone told me once upon a time, and I don't remember exactly who it was. I could venture a guess, but I'm not going to because I could have been wrong. I got back from my sabbatical having been treated for nearly a year, 10 months or so, for clinical depression. And I got back here and I started preaching and someone said to me, something's different with you. You're different. You're preaching different. And, you know, everybody asks, how was the sabbatical? Wasn't it great? Now that I said, no, it was a drag. That was a six-month bummer. One because I was being de- de- uh, treated for depression. Two, my best girl was in the hospital half of the time. 
it was a drag. But guys, God's bigger than your drag. God's bigger. As a matter of fact, sometimes He's going to take you into a wilderness just to show you where you need to go. Amen and amen. If you've been dropped, there's hope for you. Everybody stand with me today. I'm sorry it's gone so long.